You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled A Psychology of Body, Soul, and Spirit. This is the beginning of Part 2, entitled Psychosophy, given in Berlin, 1910. And this is Lecture 5, Aspects of Soul Life, given November 1st, 1910. The examples I will need to use during these evening lectures are best taken from the realm of poetry. Each evening there will be a short recitation of a poem, which will allow me to demonstrate matters as well as when I use a blackboard. Today's lecture will be introduced by Miss Waller's recitation of a poem from Goethe's Youth, an adaptation of the legend of the Eternal Jew. Please note that this poem from Goethe's Youth seems to me to have significance for what I will be speaking of. The recitations used to illustrate these lectures will definitely be of psychosophic interest. Footnote, a variation on Goethe's early poem, The Eternal Jew, was recited at this point. The original poem is almost unknown in Germany today and not at all in English-speaking countries. The text has been omitted since it is unlikely that this variation would have any real meaning for those unfamiliar with the original. The reasons for this quote-unquote experiment are explained in the text that follows, and the object of its reading will become clear. End of footnote. During last year's general meeting, I entitled the lecture series Anthroposophy. This year, another series will be given from a similar viewpoint entitled Psychosophy. If the opportunity arises, there will eventually be a third series or chapter called Pneumatosophy. These three series together will serve as a bridge to lead from the world we live in to the higher worlds that are the subject of theosophical study. Psychosophy is to be a deliberation on the human soul, beginning with the soul's experiences here in the physical world. It then rises to higher realms to demonstrate that whatever we encounter in the physical world as the manifest soul life leads to the perspective where the light of theosophy comes to meet us. We will be occupied with many themes during these evenings. We will begin today with what may seem like very simple matters by looking at certain aspects of soul life, such as attentiveness and memory. We will then progress to passions and emotions and then to matters that might be considered part of the realm of truth, beauty and goodness. We will study aspects that affect our lives by fostering health or causing illness. We will be concerned with the true soul causes of illness and as we pursue this theme we will come up against the boundary where soul nature dips into the physical body's life. Thus, we will need to investigate the interrelationship between the body's state of health and the soul's inner life of activity and work. Then, 
we must rise to a contemplation of high human ideals and consider their effect on the soul. We must look at the phenomena of ordinary life. For example, what makes time pass so quickly? We will see how such phenomena affect soul life and are present in a strange series of events within the soul. We will study the peculiar effects of boredom. Many other things could be mentioned and we could consider them phenomenologically or from the perspective of remedying apparent illnesses in the soul's life, poor reasoning ability, poor memory, and so on. You can also imagine that in speaking of the soul's life, we must touch on other areas as well. Theosophists are, in a certain way, familiar with the ideas needed to relate human soul life to other matters. You are all familiar with the aspects of human nature that spiritual science recognizes as consisting of body, soul, and spirit. That gives you a basis for saying that we must relate soul life to aspects of bodily nature on the one side, but also that it extends into spirit on the other. We have been concerned with the more physical aspects in the lectures called anthroposophy. Now we will go into the soul's life in psychosophy and later rise to the life of spirit in pneumatosophy. What is soul life when we contemplate it as such within the limits just spoken of? What we usually refer to as outer world or the given world spread before and around us cannot be considered part of our soul life. The minerals, plants, animals, air, clouds, mountains, rivers, and so on, in other words, everything in our environment, cannot be counted as belonging to the soul life, regardless of what we might bring to them out of our spirit when we visualize them. On the physical level, when we encounter a rose, we do not consider the rose itself to be a part of our soul life. However, we, if we feel joy or pleasure arising in us as we look at it, we can indeed call that a soul experience. If we meet someone and form a mental picture of that person, hair, face, expression, we do not include that in our soul life. But if we feel an interest in a person through sympathy or antipathy, or if we think of that person with love, all of these feelings must be considered soul experiences. You know that I don't like definitions. I prefer to characterize instead. I don't want to define soul life for you, since definitions accomplish little. I prefer to characterize what belongs to soul life. <coughs> Let us look at something else. Suppose we witness someone engaged in an activity, and according to what we see, we must call it a good deed one that can be approved of from a certain moral viewpoint. Then we have such a soul experience, which is expressed by our saying, that deed was good. This experience is different from that already characterized. We are not describing an action as such, or determining the various steps that led to it, and it is not a matter of our liking or disliking the motivation behind it. Other, higher interests are involved. When we call the deed good, we know that it should not depend on us at all whether we say a deed is good or bad. We must, nevertheless, make this assessment in the soul, 
if we want to be conscious of the quality of the deed. Nothing in the outer world can tell us whether a deed is good. The judgment that it is good must arise and light up within us out of our own experience. However, if the judgment is to be justified, it must be independent of our own experience. The spirit plays a role in every experience of the soul, such as this one. It is an experience in which something must be felt inwardly in order to become aware of it, but the significance of which is independent of our consciousness. It makes little difference whether we make a judgment or not. We have characterized what we might call the relationship of the soul to the outer world with three examples. First, we consider something as the outer world. Second we, second, we consider a purely inner experience, such as an interest in someone else or the pleasure we take in a rose. And third, there is an inner experience of making a judgment, which must be independent of the soul life in order to have validity. The outer world must reveal itself to the soul through the physical body. Soul experience is purely inward, but the spirit also communicates within the soul as shown in the examples given. It is important to keep firmly in mind that the soul life ebbs and flows in inner facts. Now, we must assume the task of discovering the inner characteristics of soul life, excuse me, soul experience. <clears throat> we have determined the outer boundaries of soul experience, where it borders other realms. Now, we want to see how we may characterize this inner life of the soul. In other words, what ideas or pictures must we use to speak of the human soul to make it clear that we are referring only to the soul? We need to find concepts or images characteristic of the nature of the soul as such as exhibited on the physical plane. What is the essential characteristic of soul experience? There are two ways we can characterize it, two ideas that apply only to the soul experience of the human being, as we will see when we speak strictly in relation to human physical conditions. It will, therefore, be my task to present an exact description of the characteristics, the basic inner phenomena and manifestations of the soul's life studied strictly within its own realm. Two concepts that characterize the inner aspects of that life may be cited. <clears throat> Please do not be put off, because our concern today is with the gathering of ideas. In the following days you will see the value of this precise grasping of concepts in learning to understand manifestations that concern all of us. They will provide us with indications that are of great importance for the health and illness of the ordinary soul life. One of these two concepts is judgment. Judging is one activity of the soul. All other true soul experiences and activities can be summed up by what we can call the inner experiences of love, desire, and hate, aversion. Properly understood, these words encompass all of the soul's inner life. We will see how fruitful both conceptions of judgment 
and the consideration of the manifestations of love and hate will be for us. Every aspect of the soul is either a making of judgments or a life in love or hate. Basically, these are the only concepts that pertain to the soul. All others refer to a vehicle for something else coming into the soul, either from without, through the body, or, due to causes we will learn later, from the spirit within. Thus, on the one hand, we have judgment, and on the other, love and hate. No matter what we call them, forces or activities, they alone belong to the soul life. If we want to understand the role of these two activities, we must develop a clear idea about judgment for ourselves, and then determine the significance of judgment, love and hate within the soul life. I am not speaking of the logical aspects of judgment. That would be entirely different. I am not talking about the characteristics or laws of judgment. My characterization is not about logic, but about the psychosophic nature, strictly from the perspective of inner activity or soul processes of judging. Everything you can learn about judgment through logic is ruled out. I am not speaking of judgment, but of judging, the activity of judging, using the word as a verb. When you are motivated, regardless of the motivation itself, to say that that rose is red, you have judged, you have engaged in the activity of judging, or you say, that's a good man, or the Sistine Madonna is beautiful, or that church steeple is tall. To the extent you do this as an activity in the inner soul life, that is judging. Now let us examine the experiences of loving and hating. Those who take the trouble to turn their view inward find that they do not go through the external world in such a way that their souls remain untouched by most things. Let us picture ourselves traveling through a landscape. Not only do we see green hillsides, cloud-covered mountain peaks, and rivers flowing through the valleys, our souls also experience delight in the landscape. This is because we are loving our experience. Even if this love is hidden within our soul experience, it is nevertheless something that accompanies all of us in almost everything we experience during the hours of our waking life. As you walk along a street, if you see someone doing something wrong that disgusts you, that is really a concealed, a hidden emergence of the inner soul experience of hatred. Let me read that again. As you walk along a street, if you see someone doing something wrong that disgusts you, that is really a concealed, a hidden emergence of the inner soul experience of hatred. If you happen to find an evil-smelling plant in a meadow and turn away from it, that too is simply another experience of hate that you do not immediately identify as such. Love and hate are continually active in our soul life. The same is true of judging. You are continually judging and continually experiencing love and hate every moment of your waking soul life. We can understand the events of inner soul life even more exactly when we look at something that plays an important role in judging. 
Every judgment we make has an effect on our soul life, and this is essential for an understanding of the nature of soul life. When you judge that the rose is red, or see someone doing a good deed and say, that is a good person, both judgments have consequences for your soul, which might be characterized as follows. When you judge that the rose is red, from that time forward your soul life carries a mental picture of the red rose. That judgment is transformed within the further life of the soul into a mental image of the red rose, and you as a soul-endowed being continue to live with it. Every judgment culminates in a mental image in your soul experience. The judgment consists of what we might call two tendencies converging from two directions, one the rose, the other red. These two, then, become one, the red rose. They converge into a single image that you carry throughout life. If these two experiences were drawn as two currents, we would have to draw them converging and say that your judging always culminates in the mental image. Unless we thoroughly understand and impress on our minds the fact that judging always culminates in mental images, we cannot understand human soul life or its relationship to higher worlds, which will be the focus of our study in the days to come. The phenomena of love and hate require that we ask a different kind of question. We cannot ask, where are they going, but rather, where do they come from? With judging it is a matter of where to, of where it is going, whereas for love and hate it is a question of where from, of where it comes from. As the soul gives birth to love and hate, we will always discover something there that enters the soul life as though from another side. As soul experiences, loving and hating can always be traced back to what could be called desiring. If we put desiring on the other side of soul life, there's a drawing, we can say that behind the love and hate that appears in our souls, there always stands desire which radiates into our soul life. Thus, desire, as one side of our soul life, flows into it. We will study this in greater depth. And when we look into our soul, what becomes of the desiring, love or hate? Then we look further into our souls and find the activity of judging. And if we ask what all this leads to on the other side, we see that judging leads to the mental image. Desiring, as we can easily recognize, must be seen as emerging from the inner life of the soul. Desire cannot be spoken of as something that has an external cause, since it is likely that we are unaware of any such cause. We know one thing for certain. No matter what the source, desires surface in the soul life. And we can observe that as soon as they emerge, love and hate arise as a result. We can be equally certain that our judging that the rose is red must be within the soul. When that judging develops into the mental image of the red rose, however, such an image must have an outer validity and significance 
to be of any value to us. Thus, for reasons largely unknown today, though familiar to spiritual investigators, desiring surfaces in the soul and lives as the phenomena of love and hate, and the soul feels impelled to allow the activity of judging to flow from the wellsprings of its own being, sharpening judgments to mental images, and aware that if the judging is being done in a certain way, the image can be valid. It will strike you as odd that I have resorted to so many words, instead of just a few, in presenting these elementary concepts of soul life. You may be feeling that a shorter statement would have served just as well. What I now say is by way of footnote. It is conceivable that these matters could be covered more briefly, but since they go unnoticed and ignored, even in the broadest reaches of modern scientific life, Error upon error is made regarding them. I want, as it were, to insert a footnote to indicate such a significant error, since those who are making this mistake are unclear about these matters with which we have been familiarizing ourselves and are coming to understand more fully. And those making this error are drawing sweeping conclusions with regard to a certain fact that is being completely misunderstood. In many physiology texts you may read that we are able to move our hands and legs not simply because we have the sense of perception, nerves going from the sense organs to the brain and carrying messages to it or to the spinal cord. Everywhere the matter is also presented as if these nerves face others called motor nerves. On the physical plane they do, of course. It is said that whenever we see an object, a message is conveyed along the nerve that goes from the eyes to the brain, which acts as the central organ. <clears throat> the sensation experienced there is then transferred to another nerve connected from the brain to the related muscle, which is stimulated to move. Motor and sensory nerves are distinguished in this way. To a spiritual scientific perspective, however, the facts are very different. What natural science refers to as motor nerves do in fact exist as physical structures, but their purpose is not to stimulate movement, but to perceive it, to verify it, to become aware of self-movement. Just as we have nerves for receiving color impressions, so we also have nerves that allow us to check on what we are doing and convey it to our awareness. The prevailing view is a gross error that does widespread damage. It has been ruinous to the field, whole field of physiology and to psychology as well. All this should be understood as a footnote. We need to clarify the tremendous roles played in the life of the soul by judgment and by the phenomena of love and hate, the two elements we have found active in it. The entire life of soul is composed of various combinations of these two elements. <clears throat> we would arrive at an erroneous view if we fail to include the fact that all along the boundaries of the soul other elements 
that do not belong to the soul's life in the strictest sense, enter continuously from outside. Something is certain to occur to us in this context, something encountered everywhere in ordinary life, which we talked about in last year's lectures on anthroposophy. Our soul life is essentially based on what is referred to as sensations experienced by the senses, for example, sounds heard by the organ of hearing, colors perceived by the eyes, taste experienced through the organ of taste, and so on. Experiences of certain things conveyed to us by our senses we take into our soul in a certain way and live on and they live on in it. When we consider what we take into our souls in this way, we may say that our soul life is in fact approaches a boundary presented by the sense organs. Our sense organs are like sentries posted at a frontier and whatever they report concerning the surrounding world, we absorb into our soul life and carry with us. Now, how does what sense experience gives us behave within the soul life? For soul life, what is the significance of our perceptions and what we then continue to live with, the sounds our ears hear, the colors our eyes see, and so on? What? does all this mean for the soul? These experiences are usually studied in a truly one-sided way, without realizing that a combination of two factors or elements is encountered at the boundaries of soul life. One is perception, the direct experience we necessarily have of the outer world. We can have an impression of colors or sounds only when the sense organs that convey those impressions are exposed to them. Such impressions last only as long as we are exposed to external objects. An outer impression or interchange between the outer and the inner stops as soon as the eyes no longer look at an object or the ears no longer hear it making sounds. What does this prove? <clears throat> Consider this along with the other fact, that we carry something of these experiences of the outer world with us. You know the sound you heard or the color you saw, although you no longer hear or see them. What happened there? There is something that takes place completely within, something that belongs totally to your soul life and must absolutely occur within. If it belonged to the external world, you couldn't carry it with you. Sense impressions of a color that you have received by looking at the color may be carried within you afterward, only if they dwell in your soul, if they become an inner experience of the soul, so that they remain in the soul. Thus we must distinguish between sense perception, which happens between the soul and the outer world, and that which we separate from our interaction with the external world and continue to carry within us. We must sharply distinguish between these two things. This is vital in such matters. Please do not think that I am being pedantic by saying these things. A foundation must be created for what follows. You can clearly distinguish, for future reference, between the experience you have 
as long as you have an object before you and that which you carry with you in the soul afterward, if you call the first experience a sense perception and the latter a sensation. In this way you distinguish between the perception of a color and the sensation of it. Color perception is finished when you look away, but you continue to carry the sensation of color within you. Usually such distinctions are not made in daily life, nor are they necessary. We need them to prepare for coming lectures, however, and they will prove very useful to us. Our souls carry within them, then, sensations acquired through exposure to external scenes and objects. Should we consider them to be a completely new element of soul life in addition to the elements of judging and love and hate? If that were the situation, you would have to say, well, you have forgotten something that is also an element of the soul's life. You fail to mention the sensations derived from the senses which are found there. That is not the situation, however. Such sensations are not a distinct aspect of the soul life. We must distinguish between the subject matter of the sensation and something else. For instance, when sensing the color red, we must separate out the red. If red were an inner soul experience, the whole color perception of it as red would be meaningless. The subject matter or color of the perception is in no way an inner experience of the soul. The object that stood before you is red, but its redness is not produced by your soul. What originates in your soul is something very different, that is, what you did or your activity while the red object stood before you so that you could carry the impression with you. This activity is the inner soul experience, and it is actually nothing other than the converging of the two fundamental elements of the soul life to which we have been referring. We must look more closely at what occurs when we see a color, red for example, and then carry the impression of red with us in our soul. If what I have said is true, that there are two elements in our soul life, that of love and hate, which points back to a desiring, and that of judging, which leads to a mental image, only something connected with these two soul elements may be considered when we have a sense experience before us and want to identify the sensations. Imagine that you have a color impression before you and have a sensation of the color. What emerges as an activity from the soul experience, let me ask, excuse me, this is a question, let me read it again. What emerges as an activity from the soul experience when you expose yourselves to the sense experience of, for example, the color red? Love and hate would emerge from the soul on the one hand and judging on the other. Let us make a drawing, and there's a drawing here. Assume that this is the border between the soul and the outer world. The horizontal line separates the area of the soul, the lower part in the illustration, from the outer world, the upper part. If what I have been saying is true, then if something along that boundary makes an impression on a sense organ, 
Let us say that an object at C produces a color impression. Judgment and the phenomena of love and hate come from within the soul to meet it, for nothing but these elements can flow from the soul. Only judging and the phenomena of love and hate can flow toward this sense experience as we observe the color red. Please note that there can be important differences between two judgments and between two desires. Imagine a dreamy or bored moment, for example, while waiting for a train. A memory surfaces in your soul, evoking the mental image of a previous experience that was unpleasant. Alongside this fact there arises in your soul the long, drawn-out, repugnant consequences that resulted from that episode. You can sense how these two mental images now merge into a single, intensive visualization of the impression left by the disagreeable event. A judgment is reached entirely within the sphere of soul experience. The outer world has added nothing. Love and hate also play a role, since the image arose from the soul and love and hate immediately joined it from within the soul. Again, nothing gets to the outside. While you sit quietly with this taking place in your soul, someone else can stand near you and not be able to see anything of what is going on in your soul. Nothing in the environment has any significance or in any way affects what your soul is experiencing of love and hate and judging. While we are engaged in the inner activity I have been describing, where judgment is evoked by love and hate, we remain in a sea of the soul life, so to speak. The following drawing can represent this. And there is again a drawing. The letter A indicates the emergence of the first mental image from within the soul's boundaries, B the second. They coalesce to form a new mental image, X, or judging. Thereby love and hate come into consideration. None of this extends to the soul's boundary but remains entirely within the realm of soul experience. Everything is different when it comes to a sense experience. When a sense experience emerges, we must go as far as the soul's boundary and approach the outer world. It is as though the currents of our soul life flow right up to where the outer world begins and are stopped by the outer world. What is stopped there? Desire, we may also say love and hate, flows as far as the boundary as does the capacity to judge. They are both halted at the border. As a result, desiring must stop, as must judging. Judging and desiring both arrive at the borderline, but the soul does not perceive them. In that, judging and desiring flow to the boundary of the soul life and are halted a sensation forms. Sensations are nothing more than what flows together out of inner unconscious judging and the unconscious phenomena of love and hate which strive outward but are hindered and retained. Whatever the soul carries as a sensation arises in this way. Thus, we can say that what we may call love and hate and what we may call judging surge substantially within the sea of the soul. 
We will study all these matters in exact and confirming detail and further clarify them. When judging leads to a mental image within the soul life, the soul life registers this culmination, the entire activity involved in judging, and finally sees the mental image as the outcome. If the soul allows the same current to flow right up to the boundary, where it comes up against the outer world, it is forced to let the stream of desiring and judging stop. Thus the whole process, the convergence of desiring and judging, results in sensation. Strictly speaking, sensation is the converging of judging and desiring within the life of the soul. When we consider the usual daily range of our soul life and focus on the source of its rich content, we find it to be sense experience. Self-examination can easily convince you that your inner experiences arise mostly from that which you have taken with you out of sense experience. <clears throat> if you want to visualize something higher, mental images of the non-physical, you find that it does your soul good when you attempt to perceive sensibly what is not sense-perceptible. In other words, when you picture these things through color or sound sensations, even if quite subtle. Language can show us the soul's frequent deep need to express higher things in terms of sensations. Usually people are unaware of this fact, because in picturing physical things, usually taken from daily life, the picture quality or symbol quality is very shadowy and nebulous. People believe they have produced something very different from pictures of combined sensations, but this is not the case. Just try to imagine an immaterial triangle, one that is colorless and not connected in any way with the sense perception. You will discover the difficulty in this and how totally incapable most people are when they want to imagine something like an intangible triangle. You can do so only when you make it sense-perceptible. If you want to imagine a triangle, you must always imagine it as something physical. You must connect a material idea, one connected with the sense-perceptible, to the concept of the triangle. This is in the nature of our language. You can see how you are always forced to think of a sense-perceptible... Excuse me? You can see how you are always forced to think in sense-perceptible terms through language. I said, for example, that a sense-based image has to be, quote-unquote, connected to the concept of a triangle. Isn't connecting just such a material image? We connect things to one another. The sense-based symbol is present everywhere in the words we use. Thus we can say that on the broadest scale, human soul life consists of sensations won from the outer world. <clears throat> there is really only one human mental image that normally accompanies all of us, arising repeatedly from our inner soul experience and not directly attributable to external sense experiences, despite the fact that it must always be linked to them. 
It is the unique mental image we so often speak of here, that of the I, capital. When we look at the actual soul situation, we find that human beings live, for the most part, in a world of sensations. In that world, the mental representation of the I surfaces, occasionally in a very apparent way. There is an underlying awareness of the I. When you examine your soul life, however, you quickly find that a mental image of the I is not always there. You do not continuously imagine only your I, but also other things, such as red, green or blue, connecting and disconnecting, and so on. You do not, however, continuously imagine the I. Nevertheless, in spite of this, you know that in the I image, you are picturing something that must be present in every sense experience, for you know that you pit it against sensations in desiring and judging. What we call soul experience is, in a certain sense, also I experience. In a certain sense, experiencing sound or color is also an I experience, but the idea of the I can never be kindled in the external world alone. It always emerges between the between other images derived from sense experiences, but it cannot, unlike sound and color, enter from the outer world. It comes to the surface from the ocean of soul life, and as a mental image, joins every other mental image, as it were. All these other images also surface from that ocean. They are caused by external impressions which are present only when those external impressions exist. The mental picture of the I surfaces without the existence of an external impression. That is the only difference between an image or perception of the I and other ideas and perceptions related to sense experiences. This, therefore, allows us to say that here we encounter the important fact that a unique mental image surfaces in the midst of our soul life compared with those other externally induced mental images. This is a peculiar and significant fact. How can we explain it? There are a few modern philosophers and psychologists, even beyond the spiritual scientific movement, who stress the importance of the I image. This is something Dr. Unger has often and penetratingly indicated in his epistemological studies. Nevertheless, the odd thing is that, despite their good intentions, such scholars far overshoot the mark. I will mention the example of the French philosopher Bergson, footnote, Henri-Louis Bergson, 1859-1941, developed a humanistic philosophy of quote-unquote process as an alternative to positivism, he was awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1928. In his works you will encounter numerous references to the I image, with one thing emphasized repeatedly. Such scholars have noted the great significance and unique nature of the I image. As a result, they conclude that the I represents or indicates an enduring presence because it surfaces from hidden depths rather than external stimuli. Bergson and others defend this view 
by saying that the I differs from all other soul and sense experiences in that it seems to be centered in itself, in its own experiencing, and thus perceives its own true shape. If the I experiences its own true form in its mental image, it is because something enduring is present, not something ephemeral. You will find that this is the reasoning based on the significant aspects of the I-image of several schools of philosophy and psychology, even those outside spiritual scientific circles. There is a grave error in this reasoning. A certain objection must be raised against Bergson's argument, and this proves fatal to his inference. Let us say, for example, that the I-image gives rise to something that constitutes the true human essence. In other words, that the soul is contained within this self. Let us assume that the I-image does this. Then we must justifiably ask, what happens at night, during sleep? The human being is not within the I-image. The mental image has completely disappeared. All concepts of the I-being within its own image are valid only during waking life, since the I-image no longer exists during sleep. It is gone, only to reappear when one awakens. It is, no, it is in no way something enduring. In order for the I-image to support the theory of a permanent I, it would have to be present as an image during sleep, but it is not. Thus it is impossible to argue for the permanence or immortality of the I from a mere image of the I. We would be quite justified in concluding that because it is absent during sleep, it is also absent after death. The I image can be missing. It is in no way immortal, since it vanishes every day. Therefore we must hold fast to the unique significance of the I-image, which owes its existence to no external factor, a mental image within which the I really feels itself. Nevertheless, that image does not prove the existence of the I, because that picture does not exist at night. We have reached a conclusion today that we wish to build on from tomorrow onward. We see in the surging sea of our soul life that judging and the phenomena of love and hate are present and basically form our soul life. We see that where the soul and the external world meet, sensations arise as an unconscious flowing together of desiring and judging. We see that sense experiences are taken into our soul life and that within those experiences not caused externally the image of the I appears. We see that the image of the I has one characteristic in common with all other sense perceptions, at least to the extent they are experienced by the soul. The impressions of sound and color and all other sense impressions sink into the darkness of unconsciousness at night, just as the I image does. Now, we must ask about the origin of that uniqueness of the I-image and how it relates to judging and the phenomena of love and hate described as the basic soul elements. 
I will close today with this question, which involves the relationship between the eye image or real soul center and the rest of the soul's life. This is where we will resume tomorrow. It's the end of Lecture 5.